A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Erin Remblins, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure. We talk in the virtual sense because you are calling from your home in Sydney, I, I believe. Yeah, I'm in Seaforth on the northern beaches. So, oh, be- yeah. beautiful part of the world. I feel as though this conversation's been been a little while coming because we've tried to set this up about three or four times. And um, but I, I, I actually I, I've actually been really um, fascinated with a lot of your content that you've been putting out, and you've certainly changed my mindset uh, or at least my way of thinking and broadened my horizons, shall we say? So Yay. in that with that in mind, thank you so much for changing my little mind uh, <laughs> to think a bit more broadly. <laughs> Yay! That makes me happy. That's sort of what I do. What I do. Mm. It just. Uh, learn and share and hope that it resonates with other people. So, yeah, that's a good a good thing. <laughs> what is it actually that you do? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know how to describe it. No. That's what I do. I learn and share. <laughs> I am. Um, I'm mostly, honestly, I'm mostly a stay at home mum. Um, but I have some spare time and spare mental capacity, and I use it to try and learn more about what we're doing to the planet. And fully conscious that. I am raising three children and I want to do uh, more to make their future brighter. And so everything that I learn, I try and share and hope that it resonates with other people and that they're curious enough to um, to delve further into the concepts that I'm sharing with them. So, And then that is sort of my side gig. <laughs> my paid income is a course called Rebiz where we um, take people through the individual systemic and organisational changes we need to see if we're to have a more beautiful world. It is awesome. And I must admit, uh, as an aspiring uh, environmental leader, uh, I actually did look at that course uh, on your Rebiz web- website and it does look pretty sweet, I must admit. And I think also from my perspective, without sort of patting you on the back too much this morning, because we do want to dive into some uh, uh, hardy issues, it's given me actually a lot of hope as an environmental engineer who's doing that for about 20 years. It has been a bit depressing to see the th- plight of the planet and the future forecasts that are coming out from various media outlets and and sort of media streams. And I think your philosophy around degrowth, and we'll get to talk about what that is in a sec, is a source of optimism. Yeah, I agree. I um, love the concept and I'm very passionate about it. So that's probably why, yeah, why I've embraced it so much. But I see some people comment with things like, we need degrowth not very inspiring. We need something more inspiring. And I think, wow, like this is probably our best chance <laughs> of avoiding, you know, two degrees of warming, you know, if we really pulled out all stops, 1.5, 1.6 degrees of warming, like that's really inspiring to me. And then I get a little bit like, uh, we are the adults in the room as well at this point in time. And 
sometimes yeah. you have to do things even if you're not inspired by them. <laughs> so I get a little bit like toe the line, like if this is what it takes to keep the planet habitable, maybe we just do it. <laughs> maybe we don't wait for the perfect term that's really inspiring. Yeah. Um, so I can be a little bit dogmatic like that. But yeah, I do. I find it, I find it super exciting and super, um, interesting that, you know, there's another way we can live. We don't need to have you, cause you're, you're in this space and you've been here, as you said, for 20 years. Every time a report comes out, everything's worse. Like it's very rarely getting better because we're not doing what we need to be doing yet. So, um, yeah, that's where I find, I guess, hope in degrowth. Yeah. And look, so let's dive into it. What actually is degrowth? So there's two definitions that I like to use for degrowth. The first being, um, it is a planned and democratic reduction of material and energy throughput in wealthy nations in a way that improves human well-being and, uh, global justice. Um, so that's just a recognition that we're living as if we have 1.7 planet Earths, but that's an average across the globe. And there's some countries like Australia who are living as if we have 4.5 planet Earths or America, the United States who are living as if they have 5.2 planet Earths. And there's many, maybe a hundred countries who aren't living as if they have a full Earth yet. So they're not even, they can finish a year without using more resources than the planet can regenerate. Um, and so if we're living like that, it means so Earth Overshoot Day this year, I think it's the 2nd of August. From the 2nd of August onwards, we are living as, or we are taking from future generations and from those countries who aren't using a full year's worth of the planet's resources. You know, like someone said it the other day, it's not even just taking, it's stealing. Mm, like yeah. we're stealing yeah. their future by, you know, our consumption and production methods. There's certain countries that are over-consuming. And so degrowth in that sense, in that definition applies to those countries. But there's a second definition that I really like as well. And it's sort of somewhat overlooked often when we talk about degrowth. Sergei Latouche, who is responsible for really bringing degrowth into the mainstream back in the early 2000s. He calls it uh, a decolonization of the imaginary and an implementation of other possible worlds. And I think that applies to every country. So I don't think that we need to grow every sector of the economy in order to provide people with clean water or housing or, you know, enough food. (laughs) And this idea that aggregate GDP is a really noble ambition growth of GDP is, you know, we've got to move past that because we don't need to grow armaments or fossil fuel use or any of these things in order to provide people with shelter and nutrition and clothing. And so from a global south point of view, like if they were to apply degrowth where they still need to increase their material footprint, it would be doing it without just indiscriminately growing the economy in every sector. It would be very deliberately choosing which sectors need to grow and how, and how can they do that in the most ecologically friendly way. There's a lot of stuff I want to unpack there, but the last point around GDP, gross domestic product, it's, it is often the metric that countries use to measure their prosperity, their wealth, but also it's often a target that uh, countries aspire to have is this increased GDP. Why, in your opinion, is that flawed? So GDP measures anything that adds. So it's about the value of transactions in the economy. And we want to grow the values of transactions in the economy every year, year on year, forever and ever. And that means that when there's a bushfire and people need to rebuild their homes, that increases GDP or if there's, you know, sale of weapons for war increases GDP. We're not counting just the good. We're counting the bad as well. You know, really, if we're being clever, we'd make sure that the good 
by far outweighed the bad. There's a great quote from Robert F. Kennedy when he was running for president in 1968. It goes something along the lines of, in short, GDP measures everything except that which makes life worthwhile. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, that's over 50 years ago, but it's like we're not measuring the things that matter through GDP. We're just measuring financial transactions. And that sort of results in the commodification of everything, you know, like if it doesn't add value to the economy, then let's commodify it so that it can. <laughs> so you end up like maybe things that we could easily do for each other without having a commercial exchange now being something that we need money to pay for. As I guess in, in the United States, you see that in terms of the healthcare that is provided not universally for free, but through the marketplace. And that has grave consequences for people. So yeah, I guess, you know, GDP, I think, and I don't think that's very controversial to say that GDP is a flawed metric. I think widely that's agreed upon. So where I get confused is why people would argue for greening growth, mm -hmm. <laughs> because that just essentially means taking the environmental like harm out of GDP, but you're still using GDP as your key metric. So let's just scrap it and focus on the things we need to be doing. Yeah and not use GDP at all. I guess to that point, degrowth isn't a negative GDP. That's sort of almost recession. Degrowth is about let's not use GDP at all. Let's just do what we need to do regardless of how it affects the aggregate financial transactions in the economy. Yeah, interesting. What a different world we might be living in if uh, Bobby Kennedy had of, uh, become president. But uh, we'll move on. Um, and the other aspect mm. I, you, you touched on just before around is that disparity between the, uh, I guess, the environmental impact of developed nations and like Australia, America, et cetera, uh, relative to the rest of the world. Can you give people a bit of a sort of snapshot as how the environmental impact of the rich countries compared to the poor countries? Yeah, as I was saying, there's like, if you go to the Earth Overshoot Day website, they can list it by country and they'll show you the Earth Overshoot Day and how many Earths each country is consuming if every person in the world lived, had the same environmental footprint. And there's literally, I think it's a hundred countries, something like that, that don't have an Earth Overshoot Day. The problem is that those same countries, if you were to chart them on a chart that had on one axis uh, meeting human needs and on another axis, environmental harm, essentially, those countries wouldn't be meeting human needs. So they have low environmental harm, but they're not ticking the boxes in terms of clean water, shelter, food necessarily. Whereas the countries who have, who are meeting human needs, they're very environmentally harmful. So fundamentally, there's an issue with how we're developing our economies and how we're trying to achieve our development goals. And we need to rethink that and to do it in a less material intensive way, I guess, is that point. And obviously then there's the individuals as well, like individuals within countries. Like uh, there's one of your uh, columns I read, it was it was a staggering number of something like the top 1% of rich individuals cause something like 15% of the, the environmental impact globally. Does that sound about right? Or? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. And um, the bottom, the poorest 50% cause something like 7% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So literally the top 1% cause twice as much harm as the bottom 4 million mm. people. You know, it's, it's literally, it's got to do with our wealth and how that wealth translates into consumption. Mm. And it's also worth recognising that poor individuals are often aspiring to be rich, obviously, when I, there's no um, judgment against that, but the implications of that from a global perspective, uh, from an ecological perspective, are absolutely enormous. So the rich are, are potentially leading the, the, the planet and everyone else uh, within it 
down a path of complete annihilation, basically. Yeah, there's just no way that, say, 8 billion people can live the lifestyles of the current 400 million people. You know, it's not it's not everyone. It's a, a fraction of society. It's like 10% of the world's population are causing the most harm. So, uh, so that was that 800 million people. And they're typically in the wealthy nations, Australia, Canada, the US, Europe, New Zealand, you know, those sorts of places <laughs> are causing most of the harm. And it's, you know, it's literally to do with our development model. And it's, as you're saying, a cultural issue. So we really hold people who are high achievers, who are very successful, who have a lot of material items, they might fly private jets or whatever, in high esteem. It's it's culturally ingrained to us to aspire to the big house with the two cars and the annual or twice annual trip overseas. We think that's really a sense of our work ethic and our you know hardworking nature and we've earned it so we deserve it there's a fantastic um piece by david graber um in the big issue you have to google david graber in the big issue it's called if we want to save the planet we have to stop working and it's he goes into this whole theory behind why we do these environmentally harmful things like travel and you know buy these things because we're rewarding ourselves for our hard work and it's just a really interesting mindset like if we all just chilled out and stopped working so hard we might not have these needs to find fulfillment in material items and we could just you know go for a swim (laughs) go for a surf go kayaking go for a hike you know whatever but you don't need to do it necessarily in another country halfway across the world yeah and i guess that's probably the the potentially hard thing to sell about degrowth is people think, oh, you're taking something away from me. You're taking my flash car and my fancy holiday and, and you're basically giving me a lower quality of life. But explain how that's actually not the case. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to pretend that we won't have to give up some material things. Like I think that's important to recognize that we will, but I think that the link between material things and well-being is not necessarily as strong as we think it is. So I, for example, my personal experience, I lived in um, London for four years and in that time I didn't drive because I had a train station and a bus stop, you know, nearby. I lived in walking distance to the high street and I loved it. <laughs> and when I moved back to Sydney, I couldn't find something similar and it really was really difficult for me to settle down here because I didn't want to live the suburban life. I didn't, I wanted to walk the streets. I wanted to, you know, have that little village around me. I wanted to bump into friends as I was going to get a coffee. I wanted to push my children in a pram down the street and not have to load them into the car all the time. So we've created a life style, particularly in Australia, where we can't live without a car, but I don't know if that's necessarily good. You know, like it's so fun to live somewhere where everything is nearby and you walk down the street and you get, you know, got four choices of pubs to go to and eight choices of takeaway, whatever it might be. So, um, I, yeah, I just think that we, there, for example, GDP and um, well-being have been decoupled um, really since about the 1980s. So all of this accumulation in GDP that we've had for the last four decades isn't really translating into more happiness in people. And so there's a I'm full of quotes. So I'm going to quote uh, Dana Meadows Please here, don't, yeah. <laughs> but she's <laughs> she's a systems analyst who wrote the Limits to Growth back in 1972, and she said, you know, under this a changed system, we might start to meet our um, non-material needs non-materially you know sometimes i think we're trying to meet these needs that we have with material items and they don't they don't really do the job they don't suffice um so yes so there is this element that we will have to dematerialize and and for some people that might mean we have fewer things or we 
we don't travel as much. But I think there's things in a degrowth um, economy, like moving away from growth, that people might appreciate, like a four-day work week mm. or a big piece of degrowth and a big enabler to getting to a place where we don't need to indiscriminately grow every sector of the economy is to provide universal public services. So uh, free healthcare, free public education and high-quality um uh, public education, free public transport and high quality public transport. And, you know, things aren't, you know, we're allowed to use our imagination here. Things like free internet to a quota, free energy to a quota, free water, all of these things are possibilities. And uh, people are going to listen to this and go, money doesn't grow on trees, but actually it's just made up by a keystroke in a central bank somewhere. And the the limits to what we can fund aren't, um, uh, <laughs> Here's another quote for you. Uh, Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, he said, whatever we can do, we can afford. So as long as we can do these things, money's not the issue. We can create the money. We do need to worry about inflation, um, but that is a separate conversation, not an affordability conversation. So uh, anyone who's interested in that, The Deficit Myth, I've got the book here, I won't show you, um, by Stephanie Kelton is really interesting. And it's all about modern monetary theory and this whole idea that we can't afford to do things. If you're in a currency issuing nation, it's just not true. <laughs> it's fascinating. And you speak of books like, and you put me on to, in one of our some of our initial conversations, I, I got both of them here, is it the Jason Hickel book, uh, Less is More and the Divide. Snap. <laughs> I brought my yeah. <laughs> Honestly, really interesting. Um, and it, but you can see how the concepts, the, uh, the benefits, um, like I, I'm sure the political leaders of the world, at least some of them, uh, and certainly the people in their high horse on Wall Street or, you know, in the fancy banks or whatever, are basically saying it's it's just a bunch of environmental hippie, uh, vegan, man bun wearing uh, yuppies uh, in their fancy places in Seaforth <laughs> and Spring Hill saying they're dreaming. They Tell them they're dreaming. You know, we, like if I play as devil's advocate, the first one would be we need to be rich to be able to protect the environment. We need to have high GDP to innovate ourselves uh, to a better future. We need more innovation, more uh, electric cars, more renewable energy systems to power all our fancy TVs and, and mobile phones, et cetera. What would you say to the sort of, I guess, the political leaders or sort of people wielding the power often in the, the halls of government uh, when you're pitching this idea of degrowth? Yeah, look, I don't, and I, there's a bit of a misconception that degrowth is anti technology, and it's that's not the case. Like, we would embrace any technology that um, was able to reduce carbon emissions. So, your heat pumps, your electric vehicles, solar panels, you know, all of those things, they're part of a degrowth environment. It's just that it's very hard to decarbonize an economy while we continue to grow our energy use. So there's two key points to note here. GDP is very closely correlated with material footprints. Um, so we use more materials to get to our 3%, say, GDP growth each year. Now, that might be wood, it might be sand. It's all of those things, you know, whatever we're using, which has non not related to climate biodiversity impacts. And when we talk about the sixth mass extinction, so scientists are saying we are in the sixth mass extinction already, it's not due to climate yet. <laughs> we are losing 200 species a day, not due to climate. Climate will play a massive impact in the de decades to come. But today, it's just how we're using our land. So, and land is often, we are causing a lot of deforestation for red meat and you know, essentially through cattle and the crops we grow to feed our animals that we eat. But back to my point, degrowth is not anti-technology, but while you're continuing to grow your GDP, you're going to create other environmental harms. And so there's 
correlated with material footprint, but it's also very closely correlated with energy throughput usage. And so uh, there's a great example that I like to use or analogy. While you're trying to decarbonize and grow your economy, it's like running up a escalator traveling downwards, but you're, you know, so you're heading in the wrong direction. It's just making it much more difficult. We need to reduce our carbon emissions by 50% by 2030 is what the scientists are saying, or 45%, uh, higher in, um, over-consuming nations and to do that while growing our economy at 3% each year is essentially making our energy usage about 30% higher. I mean, this mandate came out in about mm. 2020, so over that period of time, I think it's a 33% growth in energy use over that 10-year period. It's very hard to decarbonize that much already, let alone when you're using 30% more energy than you were at the start mm. of mm. the decade. Mm. So degrowth's not saying let's not use solar panels or uh, wind power, you know, any of those things. It's saying, why don't we just assess how much energy we need and not use more than we really need to satisfy human well-being. And the more we can reduce our energy need, the less environmental pressure we put on our ecosystems. So there's sort of that, let's do both. <laughs> let's use technology in the way that we need to, and also let's use less energy. And I guess degrowth academics would say, we don't need to grow every sector of the economy through GDP growth to innovate at all. <laughs> so if we want to innovate, let's target innovation and, you know, usually publicly funded or democratically funded through crowdsourcing or whatever it might be. Let's target more efficient cooking appliances or different batteries for EVs um, so that we can produce more of them with less environmental harm. Innovation is great. But innovation isn't the sole consequence of growing our economy. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Like, yeah, GDP, it, like this all-encompassing metric taking into in consideration all elements of the economy, it's like a scattergun approach to growing the economy. But, yeah, like if we targeted our innovations or, or expenditure or energy usages around key aspects of society that are really, really important and can provide a, a great quality of life, that's clearly a great outcome. And, like, the classic examples come to mind when, when Southeast Queensland or at least Brisbane was in the millennium drought in the early 2000s. There was talk of spending, I think they did actually ultimately spend billions and billions of dollars on increasing, basically doubling the water supply infrastructure available, which was, was uh, like wastewater treatment and reuse, uh, desalinization, et cetera. Basically spent billions of dollars to basically double our water supply using less than 1% of that expenditure. They also encouraged people and educated people to use less water. So we went from about 280 litres per person per day down to about 138 litres per person per day. And that effectively doubled the water supply capacity of Brisbane for, again, less than 1% of the expenditure. And obviously not just expense benefits, but reduced climate impact, uh, reduced all the dramas associated with using too much water basically so there are ways of actually doing things far more efficiently and you mentioned land like and i know we're obviously both biased here because we're both uh vegan uh and have adopted a plant-based uh eating lifestyle but land is the cow in the room the elephant in the room the fact that we use what is 70 percent of our agricultural land for raising cattle we can we massively reduce our water consumptions energy consumption greenhouse gas consumptions and probably be a hell of a lot benefit 
a lot more healthier in the process. Yeah. I think Philip Wallen uses the term they'd probably have to uh, close down cemeteries because people would keep on living longer. Um, but as a, as a joke, <laughs> but fundamentally, that, that's one example where if we just essentially, ultimately, the overwhelming message from my perspective is if we just consume less, we will not have any reduction in, in the quality of life that we all enjoy. And I'll have obviously a whole bunch of benefits associated with, including a future for humanity, if I'm blatantly honest. <laughs> Because <laughs> let's let's touch on that for a sec. So you mentioned uh, some of these sort of um, scientists uh, warning us around the environmental uh, tipping points and uh, overshoots, etc. And I think a lot of people have just started switching off from them. The UN came out recently saying it's a code red for humanity. I think it was. There was a warning uh, around uh, we're facing a was a two point eight degree Celsius uh, raise in uh, temperatures by the end of the, the century, which I think the UN calls is a death sentence for humanity. I mean, these are all really scary things. So. I'm probably lobbing this ball up for you to just smash down, basically, in a, in a volleyball context. <laughs> but what? Why do we actually need to do get degrowth from your perspective? There is no other way to avoid these uh, catastrophic climate tipping points without reducing the economies of wealthy nations. No fair and just way. Like it's you know you can't have 800 million people without electricity while we still freely you know use electricity for six TVs in the one household or whatever it might be. I don't really want to make it about what households do because there's a lot about what corporations are doing as well and sort of household you know we may not feel much of the pain of degrowth and reducing our energy consumption if we targeted the key industries where the problems lie so fossil fuels aviation plastic use armaments oversized house builds like it, we would be very clever in directing which i mean it would be done democratically so i can't say exactly where it happened but you know you, you choose the most harmful ones that are ca causing the most harm not the ones that are making people happy we're not saying you can't have hot showers so yeah, like I just don't see how we can avoid these things. I think that people shut down because they don't see any action in the right direction. And in 2019, I wouldn't have said that we would do what we had done for COVID in the following years. So 2020, 2021, literally we shut down airports for you know, 18 months or longer. It was a long time. People couldn't travel. There were lockdowns, you know, public health measures that we'd never seen before. In particular, like seeing leaders get up daily and give reports on COVID and what was changing and what new measures were being put in place to keep people safe. I think if people saw that sort of leadership from governments about climate, or any of our ecological crises, they would take it much more seriously. I think you take signals from what your leaders perceive to be a problem and that raises it as an issue in your mind. Um, so if your prime minister doesn't even acknowledge the IPCC reports that say this is basically a code red for humanity, then you go, oh, I'm sure if it was a big deal, he'd be talking about it. But they don't. <laughs> you know, they don't talk about it. And so these people who have an enormous amount of influence are really squandering it and their opportunity to do something about it. Yeah. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? 
Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Yeah, and, and like it's just from my perspective, like I, since uh, I guess coming across some of your writings and reading these books, I've actually had a, a quite a few chats with various environmental scientists and engineers and other sort of environmental professionals. And classic example, like I've been in the stormwater industry for 20 years and a big part of my job is putting in stormwater treatment assets to stop pollution from new development areas and other development areas and whatever. And, and we recognize that even if we do the best job that we possibly can, put in new butte assets, make, make sure they're maintained properly, remove that pollution, we still know uh, the waterways downstream of that area are going to have more pollution in them. So even with all the innovation and best practice and engineering innovations, whatever, in the world, we're still making the situation worse than what it currently is. Uh, and I think the overwhelming uh, feedback I get from my colleagues is that, yeah, we do need to radically shift our way of thinking our way of, and a way, obviously our way of doing and the more I talk about degrowth, the more it sort of resonates with environmental professionals. It's like, yeah, that's that's what we really do need to do. And this has come from colleagues who are making a dollar out of trying their best to mitigating that impact. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what we see happening, the development we see happening now is driven by the industries that benefit from that development. So I drove out to a suburb yeah. to see a friend a few weeks ago and it was full of the same big mansion homes with not a single shop around you know like you so what that means is you've got these hundreds thousands of homes and to get to a coffee or you know some strawberries or whatever you're in the car traveling to your Woolworths there's no local grocer there's no cafe and these environments they they're great for the car industry and they're great for the building industry they're not built around people and what makes people happy and what makes for a, a nice community so I think there's you know we need to get corporate influence out of politics is where it really boils down. Let's talk about that then. So uh, it, it all sounds great. Like, first of all, you had me at four-day work week, <laughs> number one. Free healthcare, free education, free internet. All sounds pretty positive to me. Uh, hang out with my dogs and neighbours and friends and family a bit more often. All sounds wonderful. And I think fundamentally everyone realises, hey, that's really nice. That'd be really good. It's obviously, it's a, essential that we go down the path of degrowth in some way or form, if not completely. But how do we lead? How is degrowth led? Like, how are we going to make it happen? You touched on uh, uh, politicians, business, individuals. Who, who's best to lead this concept of degrowth? So my whole theory of change is social tipping points. So there's research that shows that when 25% of a population believe in something, it very quickly becomes 75% of the population and then you've got a mandate to do it. So um, if I have the opportunity, I'm encouraging people to be talking about it and sharing their ideas around it and to be trying to influence anyone who is open to, you know, trying to understand how we can do more because... You know, that's how we changed the perception on smoking all those decades ago. Like you no longer get on an international flight or sit in an office and have someone smoking a cigarette next to you because people changed. They started to realize that actually it was not healthy and not desirable. Or more recently, the attitudes towards homosexuality, you know, that reached a tipping point and very quickly it became normalized and 
not necessarily celebrated is the right word, but it's, you know, an accepted and normal part of our society now where it wasn't just a few decades ago. So I think the more we can talk about how economic growth is harmful and putting us off and you know, to the edge of an ecological cliff and how we don't need growth to satisfy human needs. And actually by degrowing, we're more likely to keep the planet habitable for like this will happen in our lifetimes for us and for our children. Then I think that becomes a really positive message and we'll get, get people on board. I don't think there's a politician out there yet who can stand on a platform of degrowth. I think until enough people understand how important it is and you know i don't like to say this but I, the climate will help us with our messaging things are going to get worse we've just had the hottest june on record and last week was the hottest week ever recorded like monday was the hottest day recorded on planet earth followed by tuesday which was hotter followed by wednesday which was hotter followed by thursday which was hotter like it's just going to get warmer and warmer and this year's an el nino was that the right one el nino the hot one. <laughs> That's about right. <laughs> um, yeah. I got so used to saying the cold one, I forget the hot one. Um, and yeah. it's going to be massive. We're just going to feel it. It's going to get hotter and hotter. And the bushfires we experienced in 2019 and 2020, the US and Canada are experiencing now. The fires are in Canada, mm. but the smoke is in the US as well. Feels horrible. Like who wants to look forward? Who's looking forward to a future like that? It's just going to get worse. This is at, you know, 1.2, 1.3 degrees of warming. Current trajectory is 2.8. Like, we're talking crop failures, we're talking flooding, we're talking massive sea level rise. So the UN have said by 2050, there could be 1 billion climate refugees. Where are those people going to go if they're not you and I? Like, who knows if we'll be part of those refugees? Who knows if we'll get enough food in Sydney to feed the population of Sydney if there's crop failures out west? You know, like, hopefully we're not in them, but if we are, where do we go? And if we aren't, how do we accommodate a billion refugees around around the world? We've got a few years to turn this around. It's pretty important. Yeah. And in terms of that messaging, like obviously you're, you're playing a key role in that, which has been fantastic. And I've just noticed your social media following on, on LinkedIn and LinkedIn isn't, it is an Instagram. You're not going to get famous by being a Kardashian or whatever, but like you've got like, what's the last time I was like 25,000 followers on LinkedIn and everyone's engaging with your content and you're putting out so much and it is getting people thinking and whatever. And I, I think that's a real positive. You're sort of saying at the start, I'm not sure what actually I do for a job, but I, I do stuff and, and it, I, I find it very effective. Like it, we are in the age of social media and different ways of communication and and obviously uh, you know how to do it certainly uh, very very well which is fantastic and I think also from a business's perspective like if you're like a lot of businesses focus on the uh, next financial year or two or three years down the track and, and often often governments are obviously looking at their political term you know often that can be up to five years but it's generally less I mean if that's all you're focusing on, that sort of time frame, one or two years or three or four, you're dead in the water already. Like there, there's no way businesses think they can, well, there's no way businesses will be able to continue the status quo and keep on doing what they're doing unless they're part of some sort of increased efficiency. Um, and reduced energy use. Simple as that. Yeah. yeah I'll never get doing a, a – I rode my bike from Gold Coast to Adelaide uh, a few years ago. 30, was crazy, 3,500 kilometres. Ridiculous. Mm. Not going to do that again. But I remember riding through Gippsland, um, uh, the sort of – which is the southeast corner of uh, Victoria, and I was just – it was all dairy country and all these signs and farms and whatever uh, promoting milk. And I'm like, these guys, unless they innovate now – and change to uh, something more sustainable than dairy milk. Um, th th there's no way they're going to be here in in five ten years. Absolutely yeah. no way. 
so you, you have to change and you have to change with the times because the writing's on the wall. Like you mentioned, the fires in Canada, the fires previously in Australia, these are all reminders that unless we act, uh, we're in a whole world of trouble. Yeah, and I think some of the greatest actions are the ones that – so, it, like, you know, we don't know what the future holds, right? And we might not get degrowth across the line. Mm. It might end up in collapse because at this point it's not business as usual or degrowth. It's degrowth or collapse. You know, I think there's pretty clear evidence to show that we can't keep doing what we're doing and things will be okay. So the actions that are degrowth compatible and also collapse compatible seem like a good place to spend your time. So making sure there's food – you know, local food gardens. I, I don't understand why there's not a fruit tree on the verge of every house, you know, like we should have apples, yeah. mandarins, pears, oranges, lemons, whatever growing everywhere, nut trees, all of it, because every available space could be growing food. And then you reduce the pressure on the current agricultural areas to grow crops and you've got a bit of a backup and you can be a bit more resilient. I think that I want to be clear that if we're living as if we have 1.7 Earths and in countries like Australia, like we have 4.5, it's going to mean reduced industrial activity. There's just no getting away from that. So the degrowth answer to that is a jobs guarantee, um, a federally funded jobs guarantee. So you, you've got to reduce activities that are harmful to get us back to living as if we have one planet. And so you sh the jobs that remain, you shorten the working week so that people either work a three or a four day work week. Um, it's not the current, you know, you hear people talking about a four day work week, but you do as much work as you used to do in five days, but now you do it in four and it's a win for the company because everyone's more productive. <laughs> it's not that. Like we're not pretending that people were unproductive in five days. We're saying we do five days work, but we do it across, uh, twice, you know, two people do the load sort of thing. But then there still may not be enough jobs to go around. And so a federally funded jobs guarantee is a solution where local communities come up with the jobs that uh, people are willing to do. Maybe it's a community garden, maybe it's a tool um, library where you share the tools. Like you sort of, if you look down your street, probably every single home owns a lawnmower, but everyone uses it for an hour mm -hmm once a fortnight, once a month in winter, you know, we could just have one lawnmower and everyone <laughs> share it. This is where we get to, you know, using fewer materials. We don't all need a lawnmower, but it's good for the economy that everyone owns a lawnmower. And, you know, you could have all your other tools. You could have kitchen appliances, you know, bread makers that everyone pops out once a year. It could be full of things like that. But the, so it comes back to this idea of a jobs guarantee. You could be teaching children how to surf. You could be teaching children how to swim. You could just be looking after children, which is currently an, an unpaid role, but pretty important right? Mm. Like kids, they need to be loved and looked after and yeah. fed and clothed and clean. <laughs> and, you know, they need to have fun things to do every day. But currently these aren't valued in our economy, but under a federally funded jobs guarantee, that could be a job. Like it could be a job to be retraining so that you're not working in coal anymore, but you're installing solar. Like these are all things that we could be doing that are much better for the environment than just um, trying to maintain business as usual. Absolutely. Look, you know, I, I'm sorry, I just had Bunnings on the phone. That uh, they're very against your idea of everyone not having a lawnmower in their uh, garden shed. Uh, it's part, so, honestly, it's part of why we are where we are. Like it suits corporations; they need to grow by three or four percent or more every year, and so it's part of this growth environment that we're in, and it needs to be dismantled. Absolutely, and I think everyone who hears this. I, I honestly think we get a little bit complacent and go along with business as usual. Yeah, I need, I need a car. I need, a, I need a lawnmower. 
I, I need to get my food and veggies from the Coles and Woolworths as opposed to thinking, I, heaven forbid, I could grow my own. You know, I think I think it was a stat uh, a while ago. Was it the First or Second World War? I think 40% of all Amer- uh, calories consumed in America came from yes. people's backyards. I live in a worker's cottage in Spring Hill um, and I've got, uh, four or five banana trees. I've got a mulberry tree, I've got an orange Yum. tree, lemon, Pan- Panama berry tree, a veggie patch. Um, and look, fundamentally, I just eat a lot of bananas, basically. Um, uh, so, and it's fantastic. Yeah. It's so easy. And I have not got a green thumb. Anyone yeah, can attest to that. And these are skills we're not passing on to children. Like, we, they don't know how to grow their own no. food. And it's going to be one of the most important skills we can share with them in the future. And, and resilience yeah. as a community, like looking after each other, because you're not going to be able to grow enough to feed yourselves. Like, it's just, you know, feeling possible no. but if we can grow and share and create that community resilience we'll be better placed um so i think that's really important yeah and obviously it creates that connectivity all the things you're talking about in terms of yeah sharing a bread maker sharing a lawnmower maybe sharing some bananas i don't know about if i can share bananas <laughs> but i eat a lot of bananas but like they're, they're all creating connectivity yeah. basically like that i remember there was a stat uh, a while ago i think it was from dan butner um he was saying that the number one uh contributing factor to people's happiness in communities uh, or at least in terms of infrastructure, was bikeways. Yeah. And and I was just like, well, hang on, why? And it's, it's because you had that incidental uh, yeah. interaction with uh, your community individuals. You know, instead of ju- jumping in, your, you go from one concrete box your house into a, a car, drive from A to B and sit in another sort of carpeted, another con- yeah. concrete box. Instead of doing that, you're sort of, you know, interacting with yeah. uh, people. And fundamentally, it just makes yeah, us all feel better. so true. You know, you have that greater resilience, uh, mental well-being. Um, and I, but I think I think we just almost need to step away. It's like that. I, I, I keep on thinking about the Matrix yeah. movie. Like everyone thinks you just keep on trucking along. Ignorance is bliss. But I feel as though we need to just get off this. I don't know. I don't know what to call it. Sort of like like you said. Es- what is the escalator uh, going down? Run up it. Run, yeah. Run uphill. Um, making everything worse. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's a. Look, you got everyone excited about oh, oh just saying as a go. general Sorry, sense that someone else uh, will look after it. <laughs> you know, like I'll, I'll keep doing what I'm doing. I've got, a, you know, a house to furnish and build and a holiday to plan and someone else can take care of the planet. It's not my responsibility. And I think that we are the adults in the room. So um, what, another fact that I think is really interesting. Mm. That, so I talked about Earth Overshoot Day earlier and this year. it's I think it's August 2nd. It might be August 3rd. Regardless, it's pretty early. And 1970, it was December 31st. So, you know, I wasn't born in 1970. I was born later than that. But essentially, it's happened in my lifetime and it's happened in most of our lifetimes. And I think that we have a responsibility to fix it. You know, I don't think we can just give this to the future generation. There isn't time. There isn't time for them to grow up and do anything about it either. You know, as much as that's immoral and unkind anyway, they, it's too late. We've hit all the climate tipping points by the time they're the adults in the room. This is for us to fix. I feel pretty strongly about that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I agree with you wholeheartedly. It is up to us to fix. So you've got a whole bunch of inspired listeners keen to incorporate degrowth into their own lifestyles. Possibly, I'm hoping. What do you suggest for the uh, individual listener? Oh, you know, there's things you can do. So there's a few pathways to degrowth. Um, and one, I think, is creating a culture of sufficiency. So there's a, there's efficiency, reducing our energy use. But unless we're uh, incorporating sufficiency, being comfortable with using less energy and not just using that uh, lower energy use to reinvest and create more, which then ultimately ends up in more energy use, which is what we're doing in our in our economy today. 
Um, so if we can create that culture of sufficiency and being comfortable with just having what we need and rather than always wanting more, I think that can be quite contagious. You know, like I think then you start to, Greta Thunberg says we have a responsibility to make those harmful things that are normalized in the culture not normalized <laughs> and to make them to make people aware that what you're doing is harmful and it's not cool so you know the people who fly in private jets it's not cool the people who you know fly unnecessarily you know like we if we have family overseas like it's something we do every now and then and i don't think that we need to shame people for that but i think you know two or three overseas holidays in a year like do we do we need it <laughs> so, you know especially if you live in a beautiful part of the world already so that's something you can do as part of a, you know, setting an example, not because I think individual actions are the key to solving climate change, but that they are useful in creating a culture. But the other thing is just using your voice. So um, I really want us to not think that we are either only consumers and how we spend or don't spend our money is where our power lies or that we are either that we are just employees or human resources and how we earn or don't earn our money is where our power lies. Like it's not what you do at work. You can use your voice at work, but that's what I want us to understand is that we're citizens and we can create change and we can, you know, demand a better politics. We can make our fellow citizens aware. We can create social movements. We can put forward proposals like a four-day work week, a jobs guarantee, universal public services, all of these things, because that's what our role in society is. So using your voice, and I get, you know, I get pushback all the time about the term degrowth. Don't use it if you don't like it, but be honest. So you can't claim that degrowth, uh, green growth is viable because there's so much research out there saying that it's not viable. Um, and uh, there's this poem and I'm going to mess it up. and <laughs> I'm going to like not do this poem justice, but it's Bride Drew Dellinger. And he basically says, what did you do? You know, once you knew what did you do to stop democracy being eroded, to stop, you know, 200 species being exterminated a day? And then there's a great quote and it says, I just want those people reached who are in the range of frequency of my speech or something like that. And I think that's a really key point that I can plant seeds with some people, but they won't listen to what I say necessarily. But, you know, it's in their consciousness now. I will create change with some people who will go, oh, what she says makes sense. I'm on board. Let's go. And other people will just ignore me. That's, you know, I can't change how people respond to what I say, but I can still put it out there. And if you're creating seeds with people, the next person who comes in and waters the seeds might help something to grow. So, you know, just use your voice to reach whoever you can, whoever is aligned with your messaging and your approach. And um, I don't think we can ask people to do any more that but i wouldn't i wouldn't want you to do any less than that either <laughs> cool and certainly the podcast medium is a great way of, of using your voice uh which is essentially why we started this thing in the first place i'm always very honored and very thankful of the people that give uh their earbuds uh, to us every or once every fortnight and uh, uh it does lead to change I, I get feedback all the time of people who have changed their actions you know, day in, day out as a result of just hearing something uh, that made them stop and think. And I think this is uh, another topic that I think will really resonate with a lot of people as well. But speaking of voice, I don't want to wear yours out to recognizing that we've been chatting for a little while, but I, I wanted to leave, leave on one last question. We often ask this question to a lot of our guests is around, are you optimistic? Like I used the term before, uh, I think it was collapse compatible uh, when, it, when you're talking about the future of individuals and humanity, which is a bit doomsday, obviously, but uh, realistic. But fundamentally, when it comes to the fate of humanity and planetary health, 
are you optimistic? I'm going to be a little bit uh, avoid your question potentially. I don't I don't like to think in terms of optimism or pessimism, and I don't like to think in terms of hope or you know hopelessness. In the rebus course that we do, we call it hope free. Like it's just what does the world need from us? This is another quote, Wendell Berry. What does the world need from us? You know, what can we do to make this world a better place? And there's a high chance that we won't succeed. Like honestly but we do it anyway. You know, <laughs> we don't do it because it rests on whether we're feeling like our actions are worthwhile or not. Like, I don't want to wake up in the morning going, oh, I'm not feeling good. So today I'm not going to do anything because that's a day where we haven't had an impact. So I don't like to think in terms of optimism or hope, but I do like to think in terms of grief can be a superpower if that makes sense. So if you're experiencing grief about what the future may hold, listen to it acknowledge it and then turn it into action and i think that is where you can be most powerful so every time i'm like oh like i'm thinking about what my children have in store for them then i have to do something i have to then be like well all i can do is do what i'm able to do and therefore i want to do something and there's some really cool people that you can turn to if you need examples of people who've turned their grief into a superpower like george mombio he's a environmental journalist in the uk he writes for the guardian he was on Good Morning Britain, I think, last year or the year before, and he was crying on TV. He's going, this is, we are talking about the end of, yeah, Regenesis? Yeah. <laughs> I've, got his, I've got his book just here for everyone who's on, uh, watching us. Yeah, uh, yeah George uh, Monbiot, his uh, book Regenesis, uh, yeah, I just recently yeah, read as yeah. well. Yeah, he's really big into animal agriculture and how harmful it is. And he was just, in, he was in crying on live TV, just going, this is the end of everything, everything you love, everything you hate all of it you know and but because he's fully in tune with what that means he is able to then use that and he has a following of half a million people and he uses it in his columns and he spreads the word and the guy who started extinction rebellion and is now sort of the head guy of just stop oil in the uk he's very in tune with his climate grief he acknowledges it he knows things about and then he uses it to do things like create extinction rebellion and just stop oil so the thing that i think would be harmful to do is to deny that there's anything happening to bargain so these are stages of grief denial bargaining anger depression and then you move into acceptance if you can move through those phases quickly and get to acceptance <laughs> and then use that to activate your activism then i think you can be more powerful than you realize and the more people that do that the the more likely we are to have the outcome that we want yeah well well said uh and uh look this has been a wonderful chat. I feel as though I do need to let you go, and I, I, I think it's probably even New South Wales school holidays at the moment. So you've probably got three. Years. <laughs> it is, and it's not even my kids giving me a hard time. It's like dogs. No, it's all right. I've got two dogs uh, as we speak, so uh, <laughs> uh, but, but they're uh, very chilled out. Oscar and Cosmo, uh, shout out. Uh, but I feel as though I do have to let you go. But look, it's been a wonderful chat. If people are keen to learn more about the work that you do, or or, or um, a degrowth or whatever in general, what, what would be some great resources for them to uh, chase down? So start with this book, Less Is More by Jason Hickle. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a plug for uh, Jason Hickle because we're both holding uh, Less Is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. Great book, Every- yeah. And then I obviously read your uh, recommendation. Jason Hickle. I think it was the, yeah, um, the Divide. I've got that here as well. <laughs> um, I also think this is a really good book. Yeah. 
yeah, that opened my eyes up to so much that I wasn't aware of. So yeah, good plug for Jason Nick. I do follow his work very closely. Um, I, my work is on LinkedIn mostly, but I, you know, I'm pretty relentless. I share it on Facebook and Twitter and most of the same stuff. And then, uh, I write and publish my work in Illumina. And we'll include and links to all those things in, in the, in the podcast show notes. As well, uh, so you can find yeah, my Yeah. There and, and look, we, we do have a lot of, uh, environmental professionals, uh, that tune into this uh, podcast. I know that for a fact because they often come up to me and say, love it, uh, you know, et cetera. Um, you, you, Brad, you talk too much is probably a key. Um, no, I'm kidding. No, <laughs> you got a terrible laugh. Mum always says, oh, I, they always know when my podcast is on because I, I always go, oh, no, I, love you laugh. I get a lot of people imitating me, but that's all, all fun and quality. But, um, <laughs> but look, no, uh, Aaron, thank you so much for giving up your time, uh, recognizing you got. Three, three beautiful kids and a, and a dog a running around in the house. So you've done very, very well. And all I have to say is keep up the great work yeah. and I look forward to hopefully <laughs> seeing you in person uh, sometime soon. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank you so much, Brad. I really appreciate the opportunity. Boom, boom, shake the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.